Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And be sure to leave a review and a five-star rating. Uh, I had a friend of mine the other day say he thought uh, podcasts as good as ours should have more reviews, and I agree with him. So you should do that. A while back, you may recall, we did an episode that was kind of a catch-all, and you asked who some of my favorite people on Twitter were. And one of the names I mentioned was uh, our guest today, which is Will Wilson. Although you're not on Twitter anymore, are you, Will? That's right. I went into read-only mode a couple days ago. This is how cool I am and exclusive that my favorite people on Twitter, they don't even tweet, right? So uh, welcome to the program. So we've, for a while now, wanted to have an episode about artificial intelligence, which has been in the news quite a bit recently. There's a whole presidential campaign about it and thought that you would be a good person to talk to about it. But why don't we start, Will, if you just give us a little bit about your background and, and who you are. And Yeah, so uh, I am a software engineer professionally. I also, you know, I recently started my own company that is doing something secret with regard to AI. I also occasionally write for various places on the internet. I've written a few things for First Things, for American Affairs. I got something into the Weekly Standard before they closed down. That was fun. That's that's sort of what I do. I got into AI almost by accident. And it's honestly an extremely frustrating field at times, but it's also one that's having a lot of interesting things happen in it right now. So it's a fun place to be. Maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about what people mean when they say artificial intelligence. I know that there are a lot of deep, profound philosophical questions regarding, you know, can machines think and what does that even mean? And I'd actually, I mean, we can talk about that some if you want, but I think we can mostly avoid that because for the sorts of things we're going to be talking about, it doesn't really matter if the machines are thinking or not, you know, if, if they... That's right. If the machines are doing everybody's jobs and they're just an automaton, then it's the same thing. But could you just give like a, a brief Lampin's explanation of, you know, what is artificial intelligence or machine learning is another term that people talk about sometimes. What are they talking about by that? I think people mean a lot of different things with these terms, which is one source of confusion. I mean, most broadly, right, artificial intelligence is the mirror image of artificial muscles like in a bulldozer or a car. It's mechanisms that are able to perform tasks which previously were only the domain of human cognition. So, you know, if you want to be really saucy, you could say that something as basic as a calculator is a very primitive form of artificial intelligence. But I think when people use that term, they usually mean something a little bit more specific. They might mean a system which can behave in a manner that we would consider intelligent, can solve problems that we would consider to be the type of problems that require intelligence to solve without having that explicitly programmed into them, right? where the intelligence is some sort of emergent property of the system as a whole, it's not just following a script that a human wrote for it, which most calculators do. Another definition that somebody might use would be that an artificial intelligence is a system whose reasoning ability arises through its interaction with the world, right? Through the training or the experience that it receives, either passively, examples that it's fed, 
or actively uh, examples that it goes out and, and acquires for itself to learn. When people talk about machine learning, I think they're usually talking about that last thing. And they're talking about a particular implementation of that last thing using statistical techniques where a system tries over time to build a better and better model of the world and of how the world works. I can dive into the mathematical details of how that works, but I don't think they're especially important. I think the, the basic point, though, is that the thing is trying to form a picture of the world, and it's trying to form a picture of how its actions influence the world. And then it's trying to use those pictures to make decisions about what to do. There probably are some good math podcasts out there. I don't know that math is necessarily a subject that works best in the podcast format. And so, you know, the medium being the message there, I think we'll try and skip out on the math. But I, I think the upshot, as I take it, is we have for a long time had technologies that, can, you know, with human input, whether that's, you, know, you mentioned the calculator, you have ATMs. Of course, chess programs, you know, really big, bulky chess computers, a lot of specific stuff. But I guess now the thought is that, A, the number of tasks that can be done by computers without significant human input could greatly increase. You know, you could have like computers, self-driving cars is the obvious hot example, but, you know, there's a lot of other stuff. And then maybe even some sort of more general device that, as opposed to just doing a specific task or limited range of tasks, can basically do everything, you know, a, a very wide range of tasks. So how close are we in that process? Is that something that it's just going to continue to be a slow expansion like it has been where oh, now there maybe we can do a few more things? Or is there going to be some sort of major breakthrough or change? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so to be totally honest, I'm sort of a relative AI pessimist. I think a lot of the stuff that we see right now that has been really impressive and really exciting has actually not happened because of any fundamental theoretical or conceptual breakthrough. It's happened because of engineering advances in the field of dealing with very, very large amounts of data and of orchestrating large numbers of computers to process that data very efficiently, right? The techniques we're all using are still from the 70s and 80s. We're just throwing millions of times as much information at them, and you know they're starting to kind of work. But emphasis there is on kind of. Like, if you look at one of these, to be clear, honestly, very impressive demos where some AI system plays a computer game successfully, you know, beats human experts at that or, or whatever, you need to remember that these, this thing has experienced subjectively thousands of years of training at doing that, right? A human being can walk in and play the game for half an hour and sort of figure it out and sort of play pretty well. These algorithms we're talking about are nowhere even close to that right now. You know, we can do very, very impressive things with them because we can copy them around and we can save them and restore them and, you know, roll them back and do all kinds of things that you can't do with human beings. But those are just sort of the general advantages of software itself. They're not particular advantages of AI, if that makes any sense. Uh, I think it does. So would you be then, I mean, are you a pessimist even of something like self-driving cars? Or do you think, I mean, my understanding is that you're right. They're basically, the progress so far in self-driving cars has come through, well, I think what they call it a brute force method where they just throw lots and lots of computational power at it. Would you be skeptical of something like that too? Uh, or do you think that sort of thing, maybe they'd be able to do, but they're not going to be able to get anything more general? 
My understanding of self-driving cars is that the problem there is actually a very particular hardware limitation having to do with LiDAR. Basically, in order to get the kind of resolution you need at the range you need for the thing to be able to react in time if the car is going 80 miles an hour, the energy output you need to put into the LiDAR sensor is enough to like cook all the bystanders. And so there's actually just a really fundamental physical engineering problem that's happening there. And that's a real reason that these things can't drive very effectively on highways. It's possible that Tesla's approach, which as I understand it, is quite different and uses cameras and image recognition instead, you know, will end up working a lot better. But at least right now, you know, I think a lot of the self-driving cars are sort of really, really impressive tech demos, but we're still at least a few years away from anything that's actually usable. In particular, like I think like a lot of these efforts rely on huge amounts of human pre-processing and labeling of all the intersections, right? People go over all of the maps and, and draw out routes and all that, right? The AI is not sort of evaluating that in real time as it approaches an intersection and figuring out how to navigate it. That's a problem that people haven't even begun to attack. In general, the thing about engineering is it's incredibly difficult. And usually a smart engineer who is trying to build a sustainable and scalable solution will start by attacking the easiest aspect of the problem. And one thing that makes me extremely suspicious of self-driving cars is the fact that we haven't really seen that yet, right? You would think that if self-driving cars were just around the corner, you know, we might already have self-driving forklifts in seaports working pretty well. Or, you know, those little airport cars that, you know, carry baggage and people and stuff. If we start seeing widespread deployment of autonomous vehicles in these much more restricted, much easier domains, then you'd have an easier time convincing me the full solution was right around the corner. But right now, I'm not even seeing that. And so that naturally makes me pretty suspicious. They do have those little uh, Roombas that will vacuum your, your floor for you, right? That is true. We've had those for a while, though. Yes, that's true. Okay, well, let's assume for a moment that you're being too pessimistic, you know, because one of the issues that gets brought up here often is, okay, basically, we're going to automate away all the jobs, or at least jobs, a segment of jobs that the people who currently do them are easily going to be able to find other jobs at anywhere near the same wages. Uh, So, I mean, there's a lot of truckers, for example, could think of other jobs. I know back during the dark days of the financial crisis, I remember there was a story, a dispute in the Obama White House where Obama started going around saying that, well, you know, unemployment was being, you know, there there were uh, self-check things at supermarkets and ATMs instead of bank tellers, you know, basically automation was getting rid of all these jobs. And so that was having a drag on unemployment. And his economic team, as I recall, these stories were kind of like scratching their heads like, yeah, I don't know, where is he getting this from? But maybe he was ahead of his, maybe he was, a, you know, just had a lot more foresight than everybody else. Because now this is the big thing that all the jobs are going to go away, you know, they're all going to be automated. And so there won't right. be fast food workers, there won't be any right. truckers. And, you know, I don't want to, obviously, I don't want to dismiss these concerns. I think that there's actually perhaps some legitimacy there. I don't know. What is your take on that? What do you make of that? Is that a realistic concern? I think it's a really difficult question. And it's fundamentally an economic question rather than an AI research question. So 
you know, maybe I'm not the most qualified person to answer this, but I'll give you my take anyway. My take is that basically it depends a lot on the particular elasticities of that market. And so it's very difficult to predict in advance what will happen. So as an example, let's consider the mechanical loom in the industrial revolution, right? The mechanical loom enabled vastly more weaving to be able to be done per you know unit time and cost than could be done before. And a lot of people, like including the Luddites, smashed the looms because they thought it was going to make everybody unemployed. So what actually happened to employment in weaving over the course of the, of the Industrial Revolution? It actually exploded. It massively, massively increased, right? There were like 10 times more people employed in weaving after the mechanical loom than there were before the mechanical loom because mechanical looms made clothes so cheap that people bought a whole lot more of them. And so even though productivity had drastically increased, there were more people employed in it than there were before because demand had increased so much more. So there's one example. You can totally come up with examples that go in the other direction. I think it's really, really unclear what will happen with any given job function that AI comes into and can do a good job at. Overall, like big, big picture, I have relative faith in the economy and in the ability of entrepreneurs who want to make money to find jobs for people uh, absent, you know, various kinds of inefficiency and stickiness. Now, that's sort of like the naive free market take, right? And in general, I think a big mistake that libertarians make is to focus on that long run after some process of equilibration has occurred and ignore the fact that, you know, in the near term, these kinds of shocks can cause tremendous damage And if they happen fast enough, you maybe never achieve equilibrium. There's all kinds of more complex, more subtle things going on there. But I guess big picture, I am not extremely worried about robots taking everybody's jobs. And I think that if robots did take everybody's jobs, you know, we could all like go become artists or scholars or something. And, you know, provided certain distributional issues were solved, that would not be a bad world. I think... When I look forward to the prospect of the kind of George Jetson type of future, you know, if you recall the old Jetsons cartoon, I think he it's kind of charming in a way because he has a job in a factory he goes into, but everything is automated. And so all he does all day is just sit there and occasionally push a button. You know, if we imagine a world where basically any job that we would want to do is taken by robots, so we don't have to do them anymore. From a material standpoint, that's not pretty good. And maybe people would do other things, you know, in art or whatnot. But actually, what it sort of reminds me of a little bit is maybe uh, high school or even college. I, I sometimes wonder whether people need jobs in order to, like, if they don't have jobs, they end up, or like one of those real housewives shows. If you don't have the need to work to make a living, then all you basically have is, you know, your your work and effort goes into like needless social status fights and, you know, petty bickering. So perhaps Twitter is all of our future. Uh, you're getting out of it, but the whole world is going to be like that because all the real works are going to be done by the robots. I mean, to some extent, though, like, isn't this already our world? Like, if, you know, well, yes. If you wanted to maintain everybody in the United States at a bare subsistence level of existence, i.e. the level of existence that almost every one of our ancestors experienced throughout all of time, it would take a tiny percentage of the country to grow all the food and to like chop all the lumber you needed to accomplish that. 
So I feel like in some sense, robots already have taken all the jobs and yet people still find things to do, right? And people want more than a bare subsistence level of living. And there's some kind of hedonic treadmill and you measure yourself against your neighbor. And so people find things to do and they find ways to create value for other people and to create value in the world or to create beauty. And like, doesn't this just not seem like a problem? Or if it is a problem, like one that we've already solved sometime around the industrial revolution and the demographic transition? I would say it's perhaps mixed. I certainly don't want to go back to an agricultural lifestyle. I'm not the Unabomber. However, I wouldn't necessarily call it an unmixed blessing. As you say, Twitter is very nice, but it's also very aggravating. Uh, I don't know that we've solved that problem, but uh, you know that might get beyond the realm of policy to you know larger questions of philosophy and religion and other things like that. Uh, I guess what I'm just trying to say is, if we wanted to live in a post-work society, we kind of already could, yeah. but we've chosen not to. Uh, that's right, and that conceivably could continue even if no one ever had to work in a factory or be a barista or anything like that, or, or be a lawyer. Right. I have been thinking which jobs would be the hardest to automate away. I suspect that people working in political policy, that <laughs> will be some of the last jobs to get automated away. Uh, can, can you can you think of why I say that? Why? Because we're the ones that are making the laws, right? Huh. My brother, who is also an attorney, he had a story about how they were reading in one of his classes some medieval Spanish text. It was like a decree regulating the use of torture for suspected criminals. And he said, uh, and they said, well, you know, how could you tell that a lawyer wrote this? And I said, well, it's because it says right there that lawyers are exempt from torture. <laughs> anyway, that's maybe a bit of a tangent. I, I actually think, though, that like people are, are somewhat wrong about what jobs they're most worried about going away. Like everybody always focuses on like, quote unquote, low prestige jobs. Right. Maybe that's like a form of wish fulfillment. But honestly, well, first of all, I think being a carpenter or a plumber is in many ways more fulfilling. And honestly, you can make quite a lot of money at it these days. But I think like carpenter and plumber will probably be among the very, very last jobs to be automated. Right. Well, there's really a lot of medical, like doctors, I would be, you know, perhaps worried about, you know, if I was a doctor. Yeah. I think doctors are going away before nurses, man. Right. Like, yeah, totally. I think lawyers are in trouble. I think computer programmers are in trouble. Jeez, they haven't really yeah. thought about that one, but but man, let me tell you, the AI is coming for you for yeah. us. Doug doesn't like uh, the idea that lawyers might be in trouble, but it's already kind of happening with like document review or other things like that. Uh, That's right. That's right. Let me shift gears a little bit because a lot of the popular discussion around AI has focused on this jobs question. Is it it going to take all the jobs and how is it going to affect on the economy or whatever? But there is also a school of thought or a group of folks who are very worried about AI or kind of more civilizational impairing reasons. Yeah, existential risk, right? Yeah, I I was going to say existential risk. And I thought, well, you know, people who haven't heard the term would think it would be like, you know, Something about <laughs> about smart or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 it's not about that. It's about everybody dying, basically. You know, so I mean the idea is that if you had some sort of general artificial intelligence that was better than human beings in every single way, like letting the genie out of the bottle, right? And then the you know, when you let the genie out of the bottle, the genie can do it whatever it wants. And it's easy to think of scenarios where due to some improper design or something else, the AI decides that it would be better off if we weren't around. 
around. This is actually, even though this is not something that's common in the political discourse, if you look at art, movies, stories, this is like the common AI theme, the Terminator. You create uh, the AI and whatever it is that it wants to do, you know, maybe the AI, I think there's like an example where you make the AI that's going to run a paperclip factory and try and maximize paperclip production. And it decides that, uh, okay, the best way to make a lot of paperclips is to vaporize all the human beings and rearrange their atoms into paperclips or something, which, you know, would be an absurd way for the end of humanity to come about, but you never know. I mean, you could also just have something that was doing exactly what it was told, but it was designed by the military to kill people, right? Right, right. Well, that's the Terminator example. So, you know, in terms of existential risk, I mean, how serious of a concern do you think that that is taking into account both the likelihood that we would be able to come up with some sort of super AI at all. And then if we did, you know, what are the odds that we would actually screw it up, right? It's not like we ever screw up anything the first time. Yeah. So um, this is a big topic. Let me address it in pieces. I think that if you believe that the risk is plausible, almost every response to it that has been proposed is extremely silly, right? So a lot of the futurists and the sort of AI risk community talk about this as a problem of value alignment. That is, you know, you've designed an AI and it, you know, it's super intelligent and more powerful than you. And oops, like you specified something wrong in its programming, like the paperclip factory or whatever, its values don't align with yours. So it's not going to do what you say. So, you know, now we all die. And I think the problem is actually much, much more fundamental with that. And it's extremely hubristic and silly to think that if we can figure out the problem of how to get an AI to agree with you, then that is good enough. Because we haven't solved human value alignment, right? If it's really possible to create a super intelligent AI quite easily, then whoever is the first person to do that, like becomes the all powerful dictator and wins. And, you know, we sort of know what happens to people who become all powerful they generally become not very nice people. And, you know, we have a dystopian nightmare world anyway. So I think the idea that like the way to address AI risk is to do lots of research into quote unquote AI safety and make sure that we get super good at controlling these things is sort of the wrong approach. Because at root, what we've got is a political problem, not an AI research problem. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, nuclear weapons in that, you know, if you ask the question, would the world be better if nuclear weapons didn't exist? I mean, I guess people could take both sides of that, but it's easy to see the argument that, you know, probably better if we didn't have this weapon that could wipe out all life on Earth. On the other hand, if the question is, assuming that, does that mean that we should not try to look into uh, nuclear weapons or, or maybe, you know, not try and develop them? Well, there are other countries <laughs> that uh, might take a different view. And while it might be better if no one has nuclear weapons, what's really bad is if Hitler has them and we don't, or Stalin has them and, and we don't, you know. Right. After the invention of nuclear weapons, there was a faction of American scientists and military leaders who said that the only correct rational thing to do was to wage preemptive nuclear war against the Soviet Union and China and everybody who had not been defeated in World War II, nuke them all into oblivion so that the U.S. would remain the only country with nuclear weapons. Right. Well, that Um, was Bertrand Russell's idea, I believe, too. Although I think he said that we should just threaten it uh, so we wouldn't actually have to use the weapons. 
We yeah, can- I think maybe Curtis LeMay said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> he probably wanted um, to use them anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, things turned out okay, right? But like, there's definitely a whole lot of worlds where those guys were right. Yeah, that, that that yeah, there's definitely a lot of risk there. But once the idea is potentially out there, you know, there's not much you can do. I don't know. Maybe I think there were also people back in that period, perhaps a little naively, perhaps not, who suggested, well, maybe the thing to do would be to turn over nuclear weapons to some international organization like the UN, right? Maybe we could find. I think there's probably a little bit less trust in the UN as a neutral arbiter these days, but perhaps we could find some, you know, really wise neutral person. Like maybe we could bring back. Lee Kuan Yew, former leader of Singapore or whatever, give him the AI uh, so he could control everything and that would be okay. Or you could give it to me, right? I promise I won't do anything bad with it. I guess I am sort of a pessimist by nature. And so I assume that if any one person or faction controls the AI, you know, the super intelligence, the result will be a nightmare world. And so what we should aim for is some kind of balance of power. So superintelligence. So this, I guess this concept was sort of popularized by a a philosopher named Nick Bostrom, who wrote a book with that name. And there are a lot of people who worry about AI risk because they believe that once you have created a smarter than human AI, you know, one thing it will be able to do better than humans do is recursive self-improvement right? It'll be able to sort of modify itself and make itself even smarter. And then, you know, it'll be a little smarter and then it'll be able to make itself even smarter than that. And while it's doing this, it'll be able to do it faster and faster because it's getting smarter and smarter. And after a very short amount of time, rather than an AI that's slightly smarter than a person, you will have an AI that's much, much, much smarter than a person. And we won't, you know, we'll, we'll be totally taken by surprise and not really know what's happened. Is that a fair summary of the argument? Yeah, I think, I, I think so. There's, there's, there's some variations on it, but I think that's the basic idea, yeah. I guess I have a lot of problems with this argument, although I do think that it can be strengthened into a slightly stronger argument. So the most naive version of this argument, I think, sort of fails to the observation that, you know, we are kind of smart. And yet we do AI research and yet, you know, somehow we haven't been able to just like write down a way to make a being slightly smarter than us. And chimpanzees certainly are not able to make themselves a little bit smarter and into human beings. So you have to posit some reason that there's like a threshold at a level of intelligence, either a threshold at a level of intelligence, just a little bit higher than ours, in which case, you know, why, why didn't Einstein do it? And also, why does the threshold happen to be there? Or that something about an intelligence being digital makes it much, much easier to, to modify and to make smarter. I mean, I guess maybe, and maybe this is a little too glib as an argument, but I understood the idea as being that we succeed in creating an AI that is smarter than us, that can do anything that we can do. Obviously, we are able then, at that point, to create something smarter than we are. And so then the AI, since it can do anything we can do only better, it must also be able to create something smarter than it, right? I think that's supposed to be the idea. Right. Well, so I don't think that quite follows, right? It may be able to make something as smart as the thing that we produced, but faster or better or more easily or something. But there could very easily be some way in which the problem of intelligence is nonlinear, right? And so... It seems to me like we don't really know that AI research is the kind of problem where if you just apply 
you know, a little bit more thought to it, you get something a little bit better. In fact, it seems like to this point, you know, we've been applying exponentially more thought and resources and money and computational power to it over the past 10 years. And progress has been extremely slow. And so I think there's an unexamined assumption that this process will be sort of self-reinforcing and explode rather than self-limiting and fizzle. You know, it's, it's entirely possible that at some point the curve looks kind of exponential, right? But, you know, we have no evidence that we are on the right part of that curve. And that's, you know, seems a priori very unlikely that we're at the correct part of that curve. Maybe when you get to have a brain the size of the moon, you have this very rapid exponential takeoff and you soon have a brain the size of Jupiter. That segment could lie anywhere. Right, right. Well, I think, uh, and this is part of, you know, kind of the nature of existential risk arguments in general is that part of the response is, well, even if it's not likely, even if it's, you know, maybe it's very unlikely, very, 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 very unlikely, but the stakes are so large that it's worth considering as a real live serious possibility, even if you think that it's very unlikely because, you know, even if there's only a 0.0037% chance of it happening, if it does happen, that's game over for humanity. Right. So now I will give you my really counterintuitive slate pitch about what to do if you really want to reduce AI risk. Okay. Is this about nuking the planet? <laughs> no. So if you really want to reduce AI risk, I think what you should do is encourage AI research now and make it happen as recklessly and, you know, and quickly as possible. And the reason for that is that right now, computers are still slow relative to what they will be in 50 years. So even if recursive self-improvement isn't true, like a way that an AI could very quickly become much, much, much smarter than it was before is if it gets access to hugely greater computational resources, right? And if we posit that there will be both software and hardware breakthroughs happening in the next few centuries, you really want the software breakthrough to happen first, right? You really want the first examples of AI to be running, of general AI, to be running really slowly on like some giant cloud involving every one of Amazon's data centers, because that thing then has no room to grow in hardware terms, right? If it wanted to make itself much smarter and bigger, it would have to start like building factories and, and hijacking bulldozers and stuff, and, and we would notice. Whereas if in 50 or 75 years, a single desktop computer has as much computing power as all of Amazon's data centers do today, that, that's a really scary situation because now one guy working in his shed could accidentally make the software breakthrough, have an AGI on his desktop, and then it uploads itself to the Amazon cloud of 2075, and now we're, we're in real trouble. So the larger a fraction of humanity's total economic and computational resources it takes to run the AI, the less headroom it has initially. And that's good because we're going to need to actually have one of these things and study one of these things to be able to have any hope of understanding it or understanding how to how to deal with it, right? People are bad at just theorizing stuff and then getting it right on the first try. We need to experiment. So in order to experiment, we need one of these things, but we want it to be kind of slow. 
And so that's why we should try and do as much AI research as possible now. Okay, so last question. I mentioned that AI theme is something that's a lot of it in art, science fiction, movies, books, or whatever. Do you have a favorite work of fiction of whatever medium dealing with artificial intelligence or automation? Man, that's a great question. I don't know. I really like Stanislaw Lem's novel, Fiasco. I mean, it's a great story on so many levels. It's about humans traveling to visit aliens who are in the midst of their own Cold War and totally mucking everything up. It's a great work of conservative, pessimistic fiction. Um, and it, has, it has some AI elements to it that are, that are kind of fun. I am a Lim fan myself. There's one story, in fact, where he goes, one of the characters goes to um, a planet of robots disguised as a robot. And then it turns out that everybody is actually just human beings disguised as robots. <laughs> They're kind of freaky stories. Uh, oh, have you, have you read the Siberiad? His, uh, his collection of short stories for children about, about robots going around and doing stuff? I haven't. I've basically, I've read the, uh, the Titchy books. Is it Eon Titchy? Uh, is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Anyway, I've read those. I've read Solaris and The Invincible, which is about nanotechnology as a whole other subject. But I haven't read any, any of the other stuff. There's, there's. He wrote this book of fairy tales for kids with robots, and it's hysterically funny. You should totally read it to your kid. Okay, I, I, will, I will do that. All right, our guest today has been Will Wilson. Will, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks.